0: Good evening, and I trust that you are doing well as you listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse this evening. I'm Nathan Owens, and I am very glad that you have chosen to take some time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here for the program, That's Truth. Sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. I mentioned that we had a lot of interaction from you last week, and we are very thankful for that. We're looking forward to that same interaction this week. And we have two questions that are a carryover from last week. And the first one, Pastor, is, can you please explain Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 5? And the reason that I ask is, there are those who preach that if you cannot speak in tongues, You have not received the Holy Spirit. And I'll just start out by reading that passage, and then you can explain it. Sure, Acts 19, 1-5. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be an Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And verse 5, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus.
1: Yeah, uh, look, the problem with the passage there is that one of the ways to help to understand that is you've got to understand what the whole book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is a transitional book where you're moving from Judaism, Judaism, Christianity, to full-fledged Gentile Christianity. Um, and it's a progressive move. You notice that you go from Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the world, so you become a global religion. The thing about the Christian faith as it advanced, is that you want to don't want to create pockets where you've got a Jerusalem church a Samaritan church and a gentile church where they differ or they begin to have different opinions as to what happened so you will find that everything that happened in acts chapter 2 happens at Samaria and it happens at um at uh, Ephesus and happening on the global scene the reason for that is there has to be a unity of the faith the point i'm making here that in acts chapter 2 when the holy spirit came the evidence of the Holy Spirit coming Was speaking in tongues But again you know the reason for that Was for it was an evangelistic message Where everybody heard the message of Christ glorified in their language So the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2 The, the sign that they had an authentic Coming of the Holy Spirit Was speaking in tongues When you come to Acts chapter 8 when the disciples go to Samaria and um, Philip goes and a congregation is formed, the disciples learn that they work at Samaria and they send the apostles. The apostles come and lay their hands on the on, on, on the on the Samaritans and they too receive the Holy Spirit and they too speak in tongues. Then, when you come to um, Acts chapter uh, ten, in the case of Cornelius, uh, Cornelius is the first Gentile that comes into the Christian faith. Uh, when Peter goes into his house. And Peter begins to declare to him the gospel concerning Christ and His death and His resurrection. Uh, you find that Cornelius believes, and we're told that when he believed, the Holy Spirit came upon him and the, he spoke in tongues. In, in every single incident, the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come was the, this speaking of tongues. Now, it's important that that happened because imagine that. Uh, let's suppose that in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit came and they spoke in tongues. But in Samaria, the Holy Spirit came and they did something else. And you, you go to Colonia, something else happened. You can have three different factions. You can have the Jerusalem say, "Well, this is not how it happened with us." The Americans, this is not how it happened, and the, and the Gentiles. So, I, to, to lay the foundation for the church to establish this unity in these different locations, the phenomenon that marked the coming of the Holy Spirit initially. The tongues was the indication that they were having the same phenomenon in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 10. Now, when you come to Acts chapter 19, where Paul is on the missionary journey, come to Ephesus, which is another Gentile territory— again, he meets disciples who are John's disciples. Apparently, these are people who were in Jerusalem, maybe for the Passover or something, had come into John's message and heard John preaching about the baptism of repentance. They apparently had been baptized, um, uh, the baptism of repentance, but they'd gone back to the territory, and now John is gone, Christ has come on the scene, and uh, they don't even know all that has transpired between the time of John the Baptist and Christ's death, etc. When Paul meets them, Paul meets them as a Group of believers who had heard John were repentant and were baptized, but they didn't have any idea of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, and the idea of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So that's why Paul asked, by then, who will you baptize?" This will baptize unto John. Not to be baptized unto anybody is the identification. Like you read in Acts, in um, Corinthians chapter 10, that the Jews were baptized unto Moses in the wilderness. And that has to do, he, they, they, they are identified with Moses when they were taken and he went to the Red Sea. There's a passage there. So he is saying now you, you, you've identified with John's baptism, but that's not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is something called you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he baptized them, lays his hand, the Spirit comes, and the same phenomenon happened again. What has happened? The Holy Spirit comes. In other words, the the, the phenomenon of the Spirit coming initially was had to be the same in every case otherwise you would have all these division would have four different divisions and that's why i believe that that initial phenomenon was happening in every single state so that all of these pockets of believers would understand there's not four churches it's one church who went through the same experience now having said that it's interesting that in every time there was a uh laying on hands and the holy spirit came and they were speaking in tongues it was an apostle involved there are no more apostles right
0: But there's people that come and hold meetings and say they're Apostle John, they're Apostle
1: (laughs) Every I suppose they might have a right to say that, but they're not Apostles. To be an Apostle, uh, you read Acts chapter 2. To be an Apostle, there was one qualification that had to be met. You had to have... Uh, seen the Lord Jesus alive after the resurrection. In other words, it was not just that you could just say what well, I, I heard about him. You read it very carefully when we're uh, replacing um, Judas with uh, Matthias. They said he had to be uh, a person who had seen the Messiah. Paul saw the Messiah in Damascus, so that's what qualified him uniquely to be an apostle. But none of these uh, current people that are claiming to be apostles uh, have that qualification, so but, they're completely disqualified.
0: But there's people that say that Christ appeared to them, so how would you respond <laughs> to that?
1: My answer to that is, if if, if Christ really appeared to, to people, as they say, uh, believe you me, the, the, the way in which they talk so um, glibly, uh, it would be a, a phenomenon that they would probably be completely uh, overwhelmed to the point where you know the, the idea when you hear these people talk is as though he just appeared and that's it you read john when john saw the glorified christ he fell on his knees and was couldn't even move to be very honest with you so a lot mm. of this claims are just bogus claims the other thing is uh, Nathan that the apostles laid the foundation for the church ephesians chapter 4 makes that very clear that it's the apostles and the prophets that laid the foundation for the church once the foundation was laid and the apostles move off the scene. We've got the complete written word of God. So there's not this phenomenon any longer about laying of hands and the Holy Spirit comes. That is not. You don't find that any place outside the Book of Acts, by the way. Now what we are told in the Book of Corinthians, uh, chapter twelve and verse thirteen. If you've got your Bible, can you read that for me, please? Yeah. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. First Corinthians chapter twelve uh, and
0: verse thirteen. Thirteen says for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body whether we be jews or gentiles whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit
1: that's the point at the point of regeneration the the holy spirit now baptizes the believer into the body of christ there's no more need for anybody to lay hands because the church has already been established the other thing is Remember that all of these miraculous signs and uh, wonders and miracles that you saw in the New Testament. remember that Christianity is now beginning to start. They have to be authenticated that these men are men of God. And if you read the book of um, Hebrews chapter two, verse three and four, you'll find that these were confirmatory gifts to verify that these
0: apostles were authentic. Hebrews two, three and four says, "How shall we escape?" If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and, and the gifts one. of the Holy Ghost.
1: See it there? Exactly. These were confirmatory um, occasions where God was vindicating and God was establishing and authenticating that this is a divine movement started. And uh, therefore, at the very commencement of this new dispensation, uh, you had to have these miraculous displays of power and, and signs and wonders to confirm that this is truly authentic. is from God. The other passage, for example, Mark chapter 16 said that days that they uh, that believe these signs would follow. And it talks about the Holy Spirit, it talks about tongues, it talks about taking, uh, taking up, a, uh, being bitten by a snake and not dying. Of course, we see that in the book of Acts with Paul. But these are not gifts that were permanent gifts to be continued throughout the entire dispensation. These were uh, initial confirmatory gifts that established the authenticity of Christianity and that God was in the movement and that this was divine. By the way, you also find that when the dispensation of law was established, Miracles took place at Mount Sinai as well. Uh, again, to vindicate and authenticate that this is really a divine movement. So, the, the the fact that these things happened, and when they had the apostles, we need to understand that it, it it doesn't mean that because it happened back then, it will happen now. The apostles have gone off the scene. God has given His complete revelation. The book is complete. What we do now, we live by faith, and we depend upon the Word of God. And let me remind you that the, one of the big problems with Israel according to the book of Hebrews, is that they heard God's word and they heard the good tidings like we do. But the Bible says the problem with them is that it was not mixed with faith. And always remember that the Christianity is a religion of faith. Our relation with God is one of faith. Without faith it's impossible, please God. So we must not go through this life looking for signs and wonders. We must go through this life believing in God's word, living in dependence upon God's word, and taking it by faith and living by faith. That's how the, we, we are saved by faith, and the Bible says we walk by what? We walk by faith, not by signs and wonders. And that's why I think there's a distraction today, not understanding what is, what is God's plan for the believer in living today. It's not signs and wonders. It's a believer taking the Word of God as authentic and believing and being obedient and uh, claiming it by faith and living out his faith uh, from the word
0: for the individual who just tuned in and is asking, but pastor i 've never spoken in tongues. can I be assured that I am a born again believer?
1: Well, let me tell you I never spoke in tongues either, so <laughs> I have no doubt in mind that uh, and by the way uh, it 's interesting that, that will come up because if you read the the the, um, the Corinthian epistle uh, chapters twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, you 'll find that not all speak in tongues. So if you're saying that you had to be born again, and the proof of that is that you had to speak in tongues, Uh, The Apostle Paul is contradicting you, uh, uh, and so, of course, Paul wrote that epistle not of his own mind. That is God's Word that was inspired. And then the other thing I would say about tongues, if you check the list of gifts, it's always the minor gift. It's the last gift. Yet People have Hmm. taken the last gift, and because I guess it's a spectacular display of some kind of supernatural whatever, and uh, they make this the premier gift and lift it up as though it's the gift. And Paul makes it very, very clear. It's the last of all the gifts. But why are we, in a, and by the way, interested in the carnal church in Corinth, which had such a low moral um, life, and such a low spiritual life. They're the ones that were glorying in this kind of a gift because it, it gave them an opportunity to display uh, the pyrotechnics and, and perhaps get some attention. Uh, but Paul says there's a greater gift than that, the gift of love. And uh, so I can say to anybody who's uh, put their faith and trust in Christ and trusting in Christ and his death alone uh, and his subsidiary death, I will say to you that you uh, are born again. You don't have to worry about speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a gift. If God gives that gift, it is of his own free sovereign will. But you can't, you can't prod God. You can't twist God's hand to give you the gift. It doesn't belong to everybody.
0: Is it something that can be learned?
1: No, it can't be learned. It's a gift. How oh, you learn a gift. <laughs> and it makes it very clear, this is a gift from God. Now, interesting you mentioned that. When I was in um, St. S- uh, Vincent many years ago, 1980, I was pastoring a church there. And they had a, a Pentecostal church above me. And they brought a guy from Guyana, to teach the people how to speak in tongues. Uh, that was a shocker. Uh, and, and I could get the, the pastor to understand that if it's a gift from God, it's not something that can be taught by anybody. It, it's, and then the, the Bible says it's of its own free will that the Holy Spirit gives the gift. So we can't uh, teach somebody to speak, uh, speak the gift. It's a gift that comes from God. And if it's needed, uh, as it was needed in the New Testament day, uh, where you're going to a country where you can't speak the language, you don't know the language, where you're so burdened to carry the message, I do not discount that God is able to give a person the capacity to speak uh, to that, that people. But we don't need it in the English-speaking world because we all speak English.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua. 1160 a.m. 92.3 FM and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 747 on this Tuesday evening. I trust that you are doing well. If you've just tuned in for the first time, or the first time in a while, let me just remind you, this is a live interactive call-in program. There are multiple ways that you can ask pastor a question, whether it's maybe a topic you'd like covered in the future. Maybe it's a hard question that someone asked of you and you aren't exactly sure how to answer it completely from the Bible. You want Pastor to give a biblical worldview answer to a question? Maybe it's something that you're struggling with in your own mind. There's nothing to be ashamed about that. Give us a call. You can be put live on the air, one 462 7420 If you'd rather not call and be put live on the air, I understand. You can still get in touch with us via WhatsApp or text. You can send your question to one 782 one four five four, or you can comment your question under the video feed on the Facebook Live feed. Pastor Murphy, we have another question that's a carryover from. Uh, did you say all you wanted? in relation? Yeah, I think okay. so.
1: The only thing I would perhaps like us to read two verses, and that was yep. the one in Ephesians two twenty, um, which talks about the apostles and the prophets laying the foundation for the church. I don't know if you can just read that.
0: Yep, Ephesians two twenty says. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone.:
1: I don't with the church they, that they laid the foundation. My point is that was their purpose. That was the purpose of having the apostles and the prophets. They had laid the foundation for the, the Christian faith. Now that foundation is laid, uh, we have a complete uh, canon of Scripture, the Bible. There's no need for the perpetuation of these apostles and prophets. And, and that's the point. And the other verse I think that's very significant, uh, Nathan, is um, Hebrews 4 2. If, if you can read that for me, please. Hebrews 4 2.
0: Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not mixed with faith in them that heard it.
1: Yeah, the reason why I I pointed that out, the Christian faith uh, is lived, uh, we walk by faith. And the thing we got to understand, and and this is where I, I think people are getting distracted They are putting all this emphasis upon miracles and signs and wonders and so on and don't understand that the real message that needs to be carried is to change, transform life that is lived to the glory of God in obedience to God's Word. Follow the moral principle of God's Word, live out that that, that truth in His Word. I don't know. By the way, you know, John the Baptist never performed one miracle. Not one single miracle. The Bible tells you that, by the way. Wow. There's none greater than John, but not John performed no miracles. But yet John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was born. So the, 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 I think people are just being pulled in a direction, and uh, they're not seeing the balance to the whole matter of truth. And I think the key thing we need to understand today that we live the Christian life by faith, not by signs, nor wonders. I'm not looking for anything spectacular and miraculous. What I want to see is people's lives who are changed and transformed and lived out to the glory of God here on planet earth so that other people can see what Christ can do and change in changing their life. I think that's the message of the Christian gospel.
0: We have another question that's a carryover from last week, and this comes from a listener who says Pastor, some preach, some pastors preach that the servant in Matthew chapter twenty-five, is a do-nothing Christian who only loses his heavenly reward. Others preach that the servant is a tear or a goat who is cast into hell. Thank you and God bless.
1: I am actually in the preparation. We just speaking to Nathan before we, we came on the broadcast. I'm actually preparing, a, uh, trying to prepare a document on. Uh, An issue that's becoming a major um, theological debate in the Caribbean, especially in Barbados, uh, St. Vincent, Um, it's down into Trinidad. I am not too sure if it's gone into Grenada's yet, but it is a doctrine called out of darkness, doctrine where believers uh, at the judgment seat of Christ who did not live faithful, that's supposed to be thrown into out of darkness, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and I think the the question that just came in, I'm, I have no doubt in my mind, it relates to that. What I would say to the person is this: If you check the biblical references, uh, this servant is cast into outer darkness with his rich man's natural teeth, and we are told that this casting where the hypocrites are. Okay, that passage in in. Uh, um, Matthew chapter 28, uh, 25, verse 30. That's what we we're told in that particular passage. Can you read that?
0: Yeah, Matthew 25, 30 says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and go on. We don't do other verse.
0: Uh, verse 31, talking about the final judgment. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall we, he sit upon the throne of glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And okay,
1: the, uh, read the, the two verses before 30. Sorry. Okay, 25-28 uh,
0: says... Yeah. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Uh For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath.
1: Right, and read it last, verse 30.
0: And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing okay. of teeth.
1: The point I want to make there is that if you check the uh, references in Matthew to weeping and wailing, uh, weeping and gnashing and utter darkness, in every case where that expression is used, it refers to uh, it refers to hell. If you check any lexicon, whether it be Liddell's lexicon, Arndt and Ginrich's lexicon, Thayer's lexicon. Um, and there are about three others. If you were to check those lexicon, every single one of them will tell you that that's what it really means. The question is, who is the servant? Um, look look at another passage that would help to bring some, some light onto this matter. If you look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse
0: 15. All right, that says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself.
1: Now read read verse 33.
0: Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell?
1: Okay, now if you read... um, Matthew 23 is talking about hypocrites, okay, and he's saying that the hypocrites are going where? To hell. To hell. No, this is my point. Read Matthew 24, verse 51.
0: And shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
1: Now read the verses before 51, two or three verses before 51. Okay,
0: starting in verse 48, it says, But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, And in an hour that he is not aware of, and verse 51, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. Now, where do hypocrites go in? to hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth.
1: Exactly. That's my point I'm making. Uh, the servant in chapter 25, verse 30, he's cast into place with his weeping and wailing of teeth and all the darkness, and they're the, the told here that this, this this false servant is sent where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and all the darkness, and he's there with the hypocrites. Matthew chapter 23 says that the hypocrite is going to hell. So what my point is that these servants are unsaved people, and I'll explain to you why I, I think the people have created this confusion. The book of Matthew is written to the Jews. Okay, I think everybody knows that they say, well, the Messiah coming, et etc, et You must understand in the Old Testament, uh, again and again, in the Old Testament, the Jews are called the servants. Je- Jacob, my servant, again and again, the Jews are the servants of the Lord. When He comes, He's coming to a servants, the Jewish nation. But again, remember also, according to uh, Old Testament eschatology, especially when it comes to the last things. If you read Daniel there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. It a, the, the, the Old Testament has the idea that there's a general uh, gen, general resurrection where the just and the unjust are going to be. When you come into the the the, the, the Gospel of Matthew our lord is speaking to the Jews against that background of their eschatology. There's no rapture in the Old Testament. There's no about the, the the judgment seat of Christ. So all of these parables that you have there is dealing with the Jews as his servants. But everybody knows that while the Jews are called his servants, not every Jew is a true genuine servant. So that's why the word servant is used again and again in these parables. is referring to God dealing with the Jews and in that day they will discover that not all Jews are saved. So that makes sense now that the, the servants that the people get confused about, thinking that because the word servant is used, it refers to a genuine believer, they miss the point that the Jews, Jewish nation in the entire New I can show you verse after verse where they call the servants of Jehovah. Now he's come on the scene, he's presented his kingdom, he's the Messiah that's come, they rejected him. They have the idea because I'm born of Abraham, therefore I'm okay. And he's saying, listen, in that day when you judge, you're going to discover that there'll be two types of people. You can be saved and the unsaved, the just and the unjust, the good servant and the bad servant. That solves the problem once you understand what it is. So when people say that this servant uh, that is cast into outer darkness in Matthew chapter 25 is a believer, they miss the point. The hypocrite goes into outer darkness and the hypocrite goes into hell. The the, the use of outer darkness and the use of gnashing of teeth always refer to, to hell, And by the way, the word there, nation of teeth, refers to the idea of of anger and bitterness and resentment that this has happened to me, right? Mm. It's not remorse. I'm sorry. That's not, it never means that. It always means that I'm so angry and I'm so venomous that you've done this to me, basically. And that's where I think the clarity comes because the confusion comes about the words servant. I think if we can understand what the Lord is dealing with in the the categories of the Old Testament in respect to the Jews, I think it resolves the problem of trying now to make these servants true Christians who are now going to be thrown into all the darkness after the judgment seat of Christ. So I am saying to the person in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, that servant there that is cast into outer darkness, that is cast with his weeping and gnash of teeth, is going to the same place where the hypocrites are going, and the the hypocrites uh, hypocrites are going to hell according to Matthew chapter 23. So it cannot be a believer unless you believe a believer can be saved and lost. But those people that advocate this outer darkness doctrine do not want to admit that that is what they believe. So it's, there are two sermons in every one of these parables, by the way. Uh, you find the word out of darkness and that they There are always two, the good and the bad, the good and the bad. And that's in order of how the Jews understood their eschatology. There's no room in Jewish eschatology for the rapture, for the judgment seat of Christ. That comes later when Paul begins to re- reveal the mysteries of Christ. I think this helps to unravel why people are teaching this doctrine, And they don't understand the severity of it, why people oppose it so vehemently, because you're actually saying a believer is going to hell. So that means you don't believe in eternal security. Uh, I hope that helps to explain to the—but I'm going to do a a, a track on this and uh, in more orderly form to show the reasoning behind it why that servant in Matthew uh, chapter 25 is not a believer who was unfaithful, but that's a believer who is not saved, that goes where the hypocrites are, he goes exactly where, uh, into hell.
0: Pastor, if you were to interpret that servant being cast into outer darkness as a believer who's been purged during the millennial kingdom, are you undermining the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Yes, you are
1: undermining that because your sin is punitive. And we all know, and by the way, there's so many different issues at, at stake here, Nathan. We are no longer in the old Adam. We are now in the new Adam. We are now in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness already imputed to us. So well, I can live like I want? No, we know that's a different issue. No, we're dealing with that. But we have a justified believer, already justified. That means that he's pardoned, he's forgiven, he's treated as righteous. So uh, the sin problem for the believer has been dealt with. His present, his past, and his future. He will be judged for his works, and he will suffer loss for his works. But he's not going to any outer darkness. Here's another thing. Why would the Apostle Paul, who is the one that treats the, the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, what you call the, the fullest treatment of that doctrine is found in Paul's writing, especially in Corinthians chapter 3. Why would not the Apostle Paul have used that occasion to explain what this outer darkness is, it makes no sense. In none of Paul's epistles, where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, does he ever, ever bring in the idea that the believer will ever be cast into outer darkness. So to take a parable, uh, one part of a parable, to interpret Pauline theology, we reverse reversing the whole method of um, hermeneutics. You never take a difficult passage to interpret a clear passage. You always take a clear passage to explain a difficult passage. But this has now happened in complete reverse. And I think what is uh, why people have kind of um, dug in and refused to change their opinions. Is because it's very, very, quite difficult after you've been asserting that as a pastor in a church for a period of time, then to make the discovery that you're false, or you're wrong, to be able to admit to the church, listen, I made a mistake here, I was, I, I misinterpreted whatever it is, and I got off on the wrong, wrong foot in here, and um, we need to reverse. That has hardly ever happened, or hardly would ever happen. So people dig in and become entrenched, and then you've got another division within the body of Christ.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we hope that those answers have answered the questions from, there were carryovers from last week. Thank you to the individuals who asked those questions and patiently waited for their thorough answers this week. If you have a question, we would love for you to reach out to us, give us a call, ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462. 7420. I'm going to give that to you again. I know I just gave it to you quickly. Let you get your phone unlocked and get the phone app opened up. To be put live on the air, the phone number is 1 268 462 7420. The phone line is available and waiting for you to call. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1 268 782 7420 one four five four time across the eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 803 pastor anything else you yeah want to the
1: only thing I would like to say in connection with the same question just came in from um, from last week from Matthew chapter 25 verse 30 etc uh, I would recommend a book for people who are struggling with this issue because it's going to become more prominent um it's a book I would recommend is the book should Christians fear out of darkness it, you can go online and get that book. It, it costs about $9. It's by a, name, a guy called Dr. Rosker. But you Google it. I, I, I suspect if you read that book, it brings this whole thing, and it, it provides a uh, substantially uh, the answer to how to refute this, this kind of a doctrine, and I would recommend that very highly.
0: The name of it again?
1: Shit Christians Fear Out in Darkness by Dr. Rosker.
0: And yes. it's available to buy online in a you
1: got book. Yeah, especially, I would recommend <coughs> you get it online uh, using Kindle. <coughs> because okay. it, it costs you more if you go and get the hard copy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Roughly how big of a book is it?
1: Uh, it's about 300
0: and so pages. Okay. So it's worth getting it in the digital format and oh, shipping it. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's worth having it.
0: <clears throat> All right. We're going to get back to the topic of Bible prophecy. We've been covering that for a number of months now as a general topic. And tonight we're going to delve into the specific area of the millennial kingdom. Pastor, what specifically is meant by the millennial kingdom?
1: And when we speak of the millennial kingdom, we're talking about the next event that will occur after the Lord returns and defeats the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon and defeats the nations of the world. And uh, after that happens, he judges the nations according to Matthew chapter 25. And um, he now establishes his his kingdom. And according to Scripture, um, that kingdom is going to last for a thousand years. The word millennium... um, comes from two words. It comes from the word "milli," which means thousand, and the word annum, which means a year. So we talk about a thousand years. We find that reference to the millennium, by the way, in uh, Revelation chapter 20. If you turn there and read uh, the first seven verses, you'll find that a thousand years is mentioned six times in seven verses. So maybe you can do that for the audience.
0: Revelation chapter 20, the first seven verses says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So notice
1: one thousand, go ahead, read verse, go ahead.
0: Would that be a literal thousand years?
1: Well, we've come down, go ahead.
0: (laughs) And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, Till the thousand years. Second thousand is
1: mentioned. Okay, go ahead, read verse four.
0: And and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand That's years.
1: That's the fourth time. But notice that these are the tribulation saints that didn't receive the mark of the beast, so they're going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. Go ahead and read verse 6.
0: Uh, verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed... And holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And in verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison.
1: Right. Notice that if you go through that, those those seven verses, you'll find six different times the emphasis, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. We shall reign with him a thousand years. Uh, this, this is what the Bible is teaching. That's why we talk the millennium, uh, a thousand-year rule of Christ. Uh, we who are evangelicals and we who are uh, dispensationalists and who take the Bible literally— uh, we believe that this is a literal thousand years that's going to fulfill all the promises that were made in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if people know this. The Old Testament doesn't tell you the kingdom is going to last a thousand years, but the Old Testament does tell you that the kingdom of God will be established on earth, but it does tell you the conditions that would prevail back then. So what the book of Revelation does, because the Bible is progressively uh, unfolding truth, it it gives more details and now it gives you an idea of the parameters in terms of the, the duration of it. But the old testament there's no other theme in Bible prophecy that is more frequently mentioned in the Bible the Old Testament than the fact that the kingdom is coming. And so um this kingdom that is promised in the Old Testament will now be fulfilled in this thousand way r- rule. If you look uh, in the old testament just a moment, look at Isaiah chapter eleven, verse one to ten.
0: Okay. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears.
1: Stop there for just a moment. You remember that when our Lord was in the temple, he, he quoted that exact verse, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Mm. This is the Messiah. This is the branch of Jesse that's coming, the Messiah. But continue reading. you see what it tells you about him.
0: But the righteous ch- shall he judge the poor, but with righteousness right. shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be girded, shall girdle his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion and fat lean together and a little child shall lead them yeah. and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the the
1: cockatrice
0: cockatrice den They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious.
1: You notice that there are two phases there. The first phase when he comes... And then it goes right into the millennial kingdom, the time when he's going to reign and rule, where the land and the lamb would lie down together, and the little child will pray with a snake. That's the promise there. So the first part of it is fulfilled. Now, if we believe that the first part would literally fulfill, why should we doubt now that the second part is going to be fulfilled? So when he comes back, those conditions that he's talking about, that's his second coming. The first coming is the first section of the verses, the second coming. That's why sometimes in the Bible, within one verse, You've got the first and the second coming meshed together, and there's a two thousand years already in in between. Uh, so they talking about those conditions that will prevail when he now begins to rule and reign, and uh, you're going to have this idyllic, um, halcyon type of utopian society that will be created during the millennial kingdom. But that is a promise that has not been fulfilled as yet. And God doesn't make promises he can't fulfill. So, and notice again it's the root of Je- Jesse and the rod of Jesse. This has to do with the branch, which is the Messiah who would come to the line of David. Um, we don't want to prolong this, but if you look at Joel chapter 3, verse 17 to 21, you'll see another reference to the this kingdom that is coming.
0: So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no strangers pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Yeah. Uh, through what verse? 21. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. That's
1: a promise. That, that has never happened, but he said, I'm going to do it. Right? So that is part of the, the plan of the millennial kingdom. And, of course, the fact that he's going to destroy Egypt and, and Edom. Those days are coming. This is already prophesied it's going to happen during this time of the, the tribulation period. But notice that after that is done... Jerusalem is central to all of this and the whole land is transformed Uh, God is there etc etc this is all part of the promise that will be fulfilled Joni Malik we as biblical literates who take the Bible very seriously we believe that when God makes a promise that he will keep that promise it is true that israel has been set aside right now because of our unbelief but again as we've shown in the book of romans the day is coming when that unbelief will be lifted the jews would once again be crafted into god's program and then god will fulfill every promise he's ever made because he doesn't make a promise he can't keep and why would he make a promise you know he can't keep it see so that promise has to happen if we had time, Nathan, we could look at Jeremiah twenty-three. We can look at um, Isaiah chapter thirty-five. We can look at uh, Zechariah chapter. Maybe we can just look at Zechariah 14, 9 to eleven. Those those three verses as well.
0: Zechariah nine. No,
1: Zechariah uh, 14,
0: fourteen, nine to eleven. Okay. All right. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day, shall there be one Lord, and His name one. All the land shall be returned as plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and, and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Haniel unto the king's winepress, and men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no utter dark destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be a plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth.
1: But where verse are
0: you at now? I uh, just read verse 12.
1: Okay, I, I don't want verse 11. That's okay. The point is there, in that day, the Lord will be the king of the earth. And then he talks about the transformation that will take place. And then he talks about judging... The nations, and by the way, what a what a, a picture there that you're dying with your, your flesh melting. True. A lot of people believe that that is during the tribulation period, and where there be some some kind of atomic explosion. We don't know, but the fact is there that he is going to deal with the enemies of Israel. He is going to become the king of the earth. Uh, and notice that Jerusalem plays a very prominent role, the transformation is there and the extent of the land is again identified what will become no longer in charge of any anybody else. There there's so many other verses. When we come to the New Testament, um uh there is reference uh to this 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 again. If you look in Acts chapter three verse nineteen.
0: Acts three nineteen it yeah. says Repent ye, therefore. Acts two nineteen. Sorry, you think it's two nineteen? Acts two 19. nineteen says, "And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke."
1: Yeah. What does uh, Acts three nineteen say?
0: Acts three nineteen. For some reason, that. says. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord.
1: Again, that's where um, it's, this is the time, this is the time, the time is coming when this time of refreshing is referring to that restoration that God has promised in the, in the kingdom, when everything would become an idyllic paradise and, uh, and utopia. In other words, the time is coming when the whole world is going to be transformed. If we look at uh, verse 21 as well, I think, in that same passage, Acts.
0: Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began.
1: Again, that's the promise that the Lord is going to establish his kingdom. He's going to transform everything. The land is going to lie down with the lamb. But notice that until the restitution of all things, the Lord must remain in heaven until that time when he comes back. Then he restores it. And then if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6.
0: That says... When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel?
1: Yeah. That's the whole thing. Uh, the the, 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 uh, the apostles are still thinking of the kingdom. They know a kingdom is promised. And they're thinking you now that he's resurrected, he's going to establish the kingdom. He said, And it goes and say it's not for you to know the time nor the season when this is going to happen. But and then, but you shall be endowed with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Notice that he doesn't refute the fact that the kingdom of Israel is going to be established. They just want to know when. He said it's not for you to know that time. But that kingdom was promised, and it's going, and that is where the millennial kingdom comes in. Because when we look at the um, the Davidic covenant that God made with David you will discover that God promised David that he would have a dynasty, and one of his dynasties would sit on the throne of Israel forever. That has never happened. That will happen when the Messiah, who is a descendant of David, sits on David's throne and rules for a thousand years, and then the thousand-year throne, um, as it were, rolls into eternity. Uh, but the point I'm making here is that even in the New Testament, this idea that there's a coming kingdom, and there's going to be a full restoration on planet Earth, is promised even in the, in the scriptures. And one other verse that might be worth looking at is Romans chapter eight, verse 20 to verse 22
0: that says, "For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that hath subjected the same in hope." Because the creature itself shall be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now.
1: Yeah, this again the word creature there in every case should be creation, and it's not, the creation is under. It, it is creation. Yeah, it's under. No, it has it. They have creature in the in the King James, but it should be really yeah, yeah. creation.
0: Yeah, the last verse has creation. Yeah,
1: yeah, but the others got creature. The the point is here that the you have the idea that the earth has been cursed. And the earth is, as it were, groaning to be delivered, to have this liberty and uh, to birth forth in all of his glory. But why would
0: a holy God curse? Uh, His creation.
1: Well, the curse came about as a result of man's sin. You go back to Genesis. uh, Because of man's sin, God cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman. He cursed the man. He cursed the earth. It is part of the consequence of our sin. Sin today has very little significance. We have forgotten what sin is about. We've lost the concept of sin. And because we've lost that concept of sin, we don't understand the consequence and the gravity of sin. But when you study the Bible and really understand that one simple act of disobedience has created this entire mess, you begin to understand how holy God is. You will never understand God's holiness than when you begin to ponder that one act of disobedience has created the whole mess you find on planet Earth. That's how holy God is. But we we have forgotten His holiness. That's why we live as we live, etc., etc. But we have really forgotten this concept of His holiness. But the curse came as a result of man's sin. But the point is that the creation one day will be delivered from that groaning because the day of deliverance has come when Christ sets up his millennial kingdom and the whole uh, natural order is changed. Even the animals, uh, the the instinct to find each other uh, will be gone and taken away and a little child will be able to play with a snake because the whole transformation will will almost return to the conditions of Eden when Christ comes back and remove the curse and set up his kingdom. Uh, that is what it is all about. And that's the promise that the Bible gives in the, in the Old Testament again and again and again. This world is going to be transformed. A new world art is coming not by man's effort, but by Christ who comes back and establishes kingdom. That's the promise that you find throughout the Bible uh, in the Scriptures. It's going, be, it's going to be for a thousand years according to the book of Revelation.
0: Are you enjoying Pastor's teaching style? We would love to invite you to Grace Baptist Church In Gambles Terrace, Antigua, it's located on Rowan Henry Street. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10 a.m., and also at 7 p.m. on Sunday night. And then Thursday, the midweek service is at 7 p.m., and that alternates between Bible study and prayer. Again, that is Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. No, Pastor, if the millennial kingdom is a literal thousand years, and I'm understanding you to say that, how is that possible if the kingdom of God is eternal?
1: Well, we, we must face the reality that there are Old Testament passages that speak about the kingdom being eternal. Uh, Daniel 7, uh, verse 11 and verse 27 alludes to that.
0: Daniel 7.
1: And verse 11 and verse 27. It talks about everlasting kingdom.
0: Verse 11 says, I beheld them because the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given the burning flame. In verse 21,
1: 27.
0: 27.
1: Daniel says, 7, you read, right? Yeah, yeah, Daniel yeah. 7. Uh-huh. And
0: 727 says, And the kingdom and dominion. And the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Yeah.
1: the previous verse, verse 11, has to do with the little horn. This is the Antichrist that will be destroyed at Christ's coming, and then he will establish his kingdom, and this kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. So the Old Testament does indicate that an everlasting kingdom is coming. If you read uh, Revelations 11, 5, it confirms that there's going to be an, an everlasting kingdom in Revelations 11, 5.
0: And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of his mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed.
1: That's eleven five.
0: Revelation eleven five yeah
1: yeah yeah um, read the game for me I might have had the wrong verse uh, try verse fifteen I'm not too sure why I have that verse
0: and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this yeah, world yeah. are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever.
1: Right. That, so you see, the, in both the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 27, and then Revelation, chapter 11, 15, there is this reference to this eternal kingdom. But again, this has led some people to think that the thousand years is symbolic and, uh, and allegorical rather than literal But the, the point is that both of these are, are, can be true In other words, as someone has said You've got an earthly phase uh, Where you've got the thousand years And that earthly phase leads in, lead into the eternal phase In other words, the millennial kingdom Is the front porch, the eternal kingdom One leads directly into the other But one has to happen because There were promises made to Israel and has to be kept I repeat, if God makes a promise And he knows he can't keep it I mean, he should have known the beginning from the end, so why make the promise if he can't keep it? But if he's made a promise, he will fulfill his promise. He promised David that one would sit on his throne and would reign and would go into the eternal kingdom, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Otherwise, uh, God has made promises that he can't keep, and he, he probably made those promises not knowing that what would happen. If we say that, we challenge the very sovereignty of God and the very omniscience of God and the very omnipotence of God. And I don't think any believer in the right mind would challenge that. So there is going to be a thousand-year rule on planet Earth. That thousand-year rule, after it's finished, Satan, is, uh, we will discover, will be loose for a period of time. He deceives uh, those who are born during the millennial kingdom. There's a final revolt. And then the Bible says that final revolt is put down and then we blend into the eternal kingdom. So the eternal kingdom is coming, but that doesn't mean that the kingdom the promised to Israel Will not be fulfilled,
0: Pastor. Does the Bible tell us what life is going to be like in the Millennial Kingdom?
1: Yeah, it's again we go back to the the Old Testament, and you will find that uh, the conditions that are going to prevail during the Millennial Kingdom, uh, the Kingdom to come, are quite um, explicitly um, talked about in the in the uh, Old Testament. For example, if we turn to uh, Isaiah um, nine to 14, 4 to 7, and you look at uh, Isaiah 2-4, uh, you'll find that it, it gives an idea be a time of complete peace, it's going to be a paradise, uh, so there'll be a time of peace for sure during the millennial kingdom. Could you read uh, Isaiah
0: 2-4? Isaiah 2-4 says, And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke, rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore
1: That is hasn't come yet, but' no, <laughs> <laughs> but you see again, we gotta did God promise that would happen, yeah, if he's promised it it's going to happen, and that's part where the millennial kingdom will be established, and then there'll be peace There'll be no war for that. Duration of a thousand years of peace. If you look also at uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. Yes, please.
0: For thou hast broke in the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. For of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this.
1: It's a promise again that he's going to sit on David's throne and be a peace for uh, on, on the earth, you see. And notice that who is gonna accomplish that? The zeal of the Lord. It's not man gonna bring that about, it's the zeal of the Lord. God has determined that this is what will happen. His son will reign, there will be a time of peace on planet earth, and that's gonna take place. And God said, My zeal will accomplish it. My you know it's my power is gonna get get done. Uh one last verse, maybe. Well, let's, since we're in Isaiah, look at Isaiah eleven, verse six to seven.
0: The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox through verse what?
1: Uh, You read verse
0: 9? No No uh, verse 8 says, and the suckling child shall play with the whole of the asp, and the wean child shall put his hand over the cockatrice den. And verse 9 says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord and the waters to cover the sea.
1: Not only will man be at peace, but the animals are at peace. That's the point. In other words, you, you're thinking of restoration to the Edenic situation where uh, the animals now return to becoming herbivores, they're not devouring, they're not carnivores trying to destroy each other. That's the kind of idyllic uh, paradisical state that will be restored during the millennial Kingdom. So, but that is all promised. So there's going to be a time of peace. That is one of the characteristics of this millennial kingdom that's coming. It's what man dreams about. They talk about utopia, 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 and bringing about the class, the society, etc. It, it can never happen because of man's sinful nature. And man will never know universal peace until the prince has come and set up his kingdom. But that's a promise that's given in Scripture that we look forward to um, it, it reigning with him during that period of time. Another characteristic of this time that the Bible talks about, not just peace, but if you look at Jeremiah 30, verse 18 to 24, Um, you're going to discuss a time of tremendous joy uh, that planet Earth is going to have during that period of time. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18 to 22.
0: Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of them that make merry. And I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves. And their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he hath done it, and until he hath performed the intents of his heart in the latter days ye shall consider it.
1: Again, if you notice the connection, it's bringing about this full restoration in Israel where the the children, the, the, the population, Have this time of peace and joy, Uh, but notice that to do that, he's going to punish the nation. He's going to deal with the nation. So this is dealing with the same type of thing that Israel's going to come back to point where she's at peace. She not only has peace, but she also have joy in her midst. The other characteristic that's mentioned in the Bible about this kingdom period is going to be a time of 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 holiness. Uh, This is going to be emphasizes a time of righteousness that will reign on planet Earth. In Isaiah chapter four, verse two to four. There is reference to this matter of holiness being a predominant theme and a pre- predominant characteristic of the, the millennial kingdom.
0: In that day shall the... By the br- way,
1: you notice it, it's in that day again and again. You know, you, you, you made a reference? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah,
0: In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely, for they th- are that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass... That he that is left in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the Spirit of judgment, and by the spirit of burning.
1: Again go back to the matter, the whole idea of the tribulation is to refine Israel, is putting Israel in the crucible Of affliction and his whole purpose is to refine Israel, to purify Israel to bring the nation back to his holiness and that's exactly what he's talking about there um, that this is going to be a time of restoration of Israel but also be a time of holiness that will become prevalent the other thing that is mentioning in the Old Testament we could have looked by the way um, Ezekiel 43 verse 7 to 12 don't look there because we have time and then Zechariah chapter 8 verse 3, all of those verses talk about holiness in respect to this coming millennial kingdom, another characteristic is the amount of justice and right you know the world is is um is really looking for justice today yeah. and they're looking for that that day is coming man will not be able to achieve it uh but God is going to bring about uh, this this justice that people are looking for look at um Isaiah chapter nine verse seven
0: that says of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. again
1: that's that's talking the time when it, the Messiah is going to be there and it's the throne of David, but his rule is going to be one of righteousness and again that is that has never happened that will take place during the beginning kingdom look at one other look at Isaiah chapter eleven uh, verse two to seven
0: and the spirit of the Lord. Shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be girdled of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf with the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox.
1: You notice the context again. You're talking about the this idyllic paradise that's going to be established, but notice again the reference to this concept of righteousness, and he's ruling with a, a rod of iron. So righteousness is going to be one of the, not only holiness, not only joy, not only peace, but the, the this this thing that, this, uh, this ephemeral thing that people are looking for called justice. Finally, we get righteousness. And by the way, you can't get justice without righteousness. And that is why it emphasizes all the time that with this righteousness will come this justice.
0: Can you say that again? You can't get what?
1: You can't get justice without being righteous. You've got to have a righteous people to produce real, real justice.
0: So you're saying true justice can't be brought about with the, the Me Too movement or different things? I,
1: the only way you're going to get absolute right justice is to have righteousness. And uh, we don't have that, right? I'm not saying we can't mitigate uh, wrongdoing, but in terms of establishing genuine, authentic justice, here's the problem you have, right? No matter what you do. You don't know the circumstances why people do things. You can't get into motives, etc. But he, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who knows the beginning from the end, he knows exactly how to dispense uh, justice because he knows he's righteous in himself and he knows everything. Um, But to have real uh, final, absolute justice, you need righteousness, and he's a righteous one to do that. Because if you're not righteous, your judgment is always colored. It's always uh, tinted with some aspect of your sinful nature. The other thing, uh, oh, this, to to to, uh, to establish this righteousness uh, rule during this millennial kingdom, uh, one thing is emphasized again and again, and that is that he will rule with a rod of iron. So even during the tribulation, during the millennial kingdom, remember that Uh, the Gentile nations are judged according to how they treat Israel and those that are righteous go into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years people are born Uh, so you've got You've got living people that go into the millennial kingdom, you've got the saints who come back. But even then, you still have the sinful nature. That's why at the end of the millennial kingdom, the devil is let loose for a season and he's able to deceive because that sinful nature is there. And we talk about why the Lord does that eventually. But the point being made here that to establish his righteousness, he has to rule with a rod of iron. Once you have a sinful environment and a sinful society, you have to set parameters. You cannot be able to establish justice. You cannot be able to in, 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 uh, enforce justice without having some legitimate means to sanction wrongdoing. And that's why they said they ruled it wrong in there during this period of time. So even though it's a peaceful time time of joy, yet human nature is such that
0: there's even going to even rebel against the king. Can you remind us just a brief timeline of where the rapture falls, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the, s- the second coming, okay. and the battle of Armageddon.
1: Yeah, we, we've said that the next prophetic event, as far as the scripture is concerned, is the rapture. The okay. rapture has to do with the church. Our Lord comes back with the church, uh, not with the church, he comes back for his church. The trumpet is sung, the dead in Christ are, are raised first, we who live a and we are still together with the Lord. When that t- takes place, then the tribulation period begins, because that's the time that God begins to pour His wrath on planet earth. After the tribulation period, it ends with the Lord coming back with His saints now. And that's where the judgment seat of Christ takes place. In that period between the the rapture and the second coming, that's where you've got the judgment seat of Christ. The believers are rewarded. Now they come back with Him uh, in Revelation chapter 19, to deal with the nations that are gathered against Israel. He said, I will bring all nations against Jerusalem and the Lord will return and save Jerusalem. There's going to be a massive earthquake the Bible talks about that will split the Mount of Olives and the, the, the sea, the dead sea, will flow in a different direction. That's why somebody asked the question about the islands disappearing in the book yeah. of Revelations. I have no doubt about that's what's going to happen uh, when this massive earthquake takes place. But the thing about it is, so you've got the Armageddon Right, So, you've got the, the Lord comes back, the second coming, uh, and at the second coming, that's where Armageddon is. Uh, that's the final battle.
0: Both after, of those happen at the end of the tribulation. Yeah,
1: that happens, the Armageddon is the end of the tribulation. Then, after the tribulation, now you have this millennial kingdom. The Lord comes back, he says, to his millennial kingdom. The devil is bound for a thousand years, and then we're told at the end of a thousand years he's let loose. A period of time he goes and deceive because within a thousand years, think of how many people are born during that period of time, right? And then there's a final rebellion called the Battle of Gog and Magog, and then our Lord squashes that, and then the eternal state begins a new heaven and new earth. So the the, tribu- the the rapture, the tribulation, Armageddon, the Lord's return, millennium. Final rebellion, and then you've got the eternal state established.
0: So there's two big battles. Armageddon is not the last. one.
1: No, battle. Armageddon is not the last one. It's, it's very clear when you read the Book of Revelation that after the the loosing of the devil for th- after a thousand years. He's going to do what he does all the time, deceive the world. As a matter of fact, John tells us in the book of First John that the whole world today sits in his lap, basically. We've got to understand what's happening in the political world when you see that the whole moral society is just disintegrating. This is not just man creating this environment. This is a mastermind that is bent. Remember, he comes not to steal and do what? To destroy. The ultimate goal is to destroy. He destroys family, destroys nations, and he does it through a process of deception.
0: Pastor, I lu- listener is asking how can a holy Christ who reigns during the millennial kingdom allow that there still be sin nature on earth
1: well we're coming to that because you know a lot of people think the problem is the environment you know, you know so well we blame the environment we blame the environment so many people are doing it wrong I think one of the real things that will be demonstrated during the millennial kingdom that you can have a perfect environment and the problem is man's sinful nature it's not the environment the problem with man is his heart he needs a regeneration. He needs transformation. He needs a power to change him that nothing that man can do can offer. And that's where the gospel comes in. And I think in that final part of the world, uh, the end, that it will prove to the world once and for all, the problem is not the environment. Because people get the impression that if we give everybody a house, if we give everybody a car, if we give them a job and they've got all kinds of money in their pocket, that they'll be good people. That's not true. The problem is not the environment. The problem, What the environment does is to bring out what's in the person. I think I used the illustration some time ago, Nathan, that there was a, a counselor at Bob Jones um, who used to carry a, keep a, a tea bag in his, I think it was Jim Berg, used to keep it in his, in his, um, uh, desk jar, mm-hmm. and when kids would come in and complain and complain and complain and complain uh he'd take out the you know take put the hot water and then put the tea bag and uh he says it's not the hot water that uh, you know what happened is that the the tea bag has something in it already if it didn't have when they put it in hot it wouldn't come out but it's the environment that brings out what's in the person. And that's what needs to be proven. It's not the environment. It's just the environment brings out what is actually in there. Christ said what? Out of the heart comes what? All these evil things. And man has not been prepared to accept that. He's been trying to say that he's sick. He's been trying to say his environment. It's his mom. It's his dad. It's his trauma from the past. And God says it is all a result of your sinful heart. That would be proven finally in that day.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have... Just over 15 minutes left in the program tonight. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 843. Go ahead and call in with your question or WhatsApp or text your question if you'd like to call. We put live on the air. You can call 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send it to one 268 782 1454 or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can comment your question under the video feed. We're talking about the Millennial Kingdom tonight. We're continuing this study on Bible prophecy. Pastor, is there really any biblical reason for the Millennial Kingdom? Or is this just kind of some utopia that uh, dispensationalists have said, you know what, this is something we want to believe in?
1: Yeah, uh, Before I drift there for just a moment, yeah. Nathan, I just want to point out one other thing about the uh, the character of the millennial kingdom and the condition that we reveal, and I think a lot of people like this, and that is that uh, you're not going to need a health care program, you're not going to need insurance for your health, because in this point in time there would be no sickness. Uh, the duration of life, uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, for example, uh, when a man is 100 years, it's like he's a boy. And I, I wish we were at that stage not right now. But Amen. That, <laughs> <laughs> so, when a person died at uh, 100, at 100 uh, it would be considered as though he died prematurely in that day. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20 talks about this.
0: There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. Yeah.
1: So the idea there that, the again, the, the duration of the period of time, notice that, it, you know, the idea that there's going to be a, a relief. Remember that the curse is being lifted uh, during the millennial kingdom. So a, a lot of the sickness, you're going to have longevity again during this period of time. Uh, if we had time to look at Isaiah 29, 18 and 9, we <coughs> don't have that. And then Isaiah 35, verse 4, 4, 4, 4 to 10, yeah.
0: I guess a follow-up to that previous question is, <coughs> If the curse is lifted, the curse is there because of sin. Yeah. If the curse is lifted, how can the curse be lifted if there's still sin nature in man?
1: Well, when I say lifted, I, I don't mean that the, the whole thing is lifted the, the in respect to the earth. It's lifted in respect to man. Man goes through this period of time. So I it's see. not as though the whole sin problem is, is, is thing. And again, by the way, it, it gives those people who are born during the millennial kingdom... Uh, to either show their loyalty to Christ or, or reject him. So
0: they have free will. You would
1: think that living in that kind of a state with his peace, his joy, his longevity, you would say man alive is a perfect paradise. There shouldn't be any problems. But I really think the Lord is proving once and for all the problem is not the environment. The problem is human heart, that it's evil, is sinful, and it needs to be completely eradicated of a person. And that's why in the eternal state, the sin nature finally would be and we be transformed into into Christ's image, and they'll not have this in nature any longer in us. But I think that there's still a lot of people that who still have this. Uh, you know, the big problem today, uh, Nathan, is that psychology has taken over the interpretation of theology. Uh, and what I mean, people like Freud and Watson and um, Maslow and all those different fellows have so infiltrated the church in terms of the understanding of biblical theology and what I call um, anthropology, the doctrine of man, that rather than take the biblical view on these matters, uh, for example, they're giving the idea that you're driven by your past. The Bible says what drives you is your lust, your desires. Yeah. You know, Jones, that's what was one. Correct. I, again and again, I was reading that this week, by the way. It keeps emphasizing that it's, it's your lust that deceives you, it's your desires that deceive you, but yet we're told that we are controlled by our subconscious. It's not our subconscious or unconscious. No, they, because that that's the yeah. thing, thing with fraud. You're doing wrong, but you don't know you're doing wrong because something inside you is driving you that you don't have any control about. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says it's your lust, your desires. That, And when a person sits down and thinks about it, to be very honest with you, Oh, every evil you do, every wrong, there's some desire you are trying to accomplish, something you're trying to meet. That's the biblical model of, of man's problem and how to understand that his problem is his desires. You've got to deal and focus on his desires and controlling his lust. The others want to so say you've got to control the past and go back and relive the past. How are you, how are you going to help a person when you tell them you've got to relive the trauma that you've been through and see, you know? And, and by the way, sometimes they even bring in Jesus there. Call Jesus at this point, and Jesus will heal you at that point in time. All myth, complete myth, but the church has bought into it, and it has crept into the church. And that is why in seminaries, uh, when people do counseling, and they do all of this uh, psychology that comes from these type of men, um... They entertain ideas that are foreign to Scripture, and then they leave those seminaries, come into the church, and begin to do counseling. And what they counsel? They counsel according to what these guys have said. And they do tremendous harm to believers because they don't let people understand that you're responsible, you're a moral being, you make choices, and you're driven by a power called your evil nature. And the only thing that can save you from that is Christ and His transforming power in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical message.
0: If the environment is not the cause of man's problem, you mentioned that the gospel is the answer and the only answer. Mm-hmm. But there is so much confusion out there as about what the true gospel is. Can you just summarize from the Bible yeah. what is the true gospel?
1: The gospel, uh, in essence, is that man is a fallen creature who has sinned against God and is, deep, is separated from God. And that God, to resolve this problem of human sin, has sent His Son into the world to die in man's place, to forgive man his pardon, and to um, break the power of sin in a man's life, and also to impart Christ's righteousness to him. Because even though his sin is forgiven, he still has to deal with God. To deal with God, it means that God deals with us in righteousness, but we have no righteousness on our own. That's why the Bible says that Christ's righteousness is imputed in our count. So when God sees us, as the Bible says, we are in Christ, and God is able to deal with us. But it's a simple matter of putting your faith and trust in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in man's place for man's sin, that man can be forgiven by an act of simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the gist of the God. It's not church, it's not baptism, it's not confirmation, it's not living a good life. Those are things that follow the Christian faith. It's a matter of connecting with God by an act of faith and putting the faith and trust in what Christ has done in the cross. Salvation, Nathan, is what God has done for us. and not something we can do for God. God has made the way and provided what needs to. And He is the one that tells us what we should do, not the church, not the pastor. What the Word of God says is exactly what we need to do.
0: For the individual who says, I agree with that pastor. I've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, but I'm attending a church that doesn't teach that. What advice do you have?
1: My counsel to anybody who's in a church where the gospel is obscured and where it's distorted is to find another church. Um, I make no apologies for the, about that. If you're being told that you can be saved by being confirmed or being baptized or by joining the church or giving, uh, going to the altar or maybe doing the Mass, uh, I would suggest to you to examine the Scriptures for yourself, but you cannot stay in a situation where the Gospel is kept in darkness. The whole gospel is about Jesus Christ and what God's provision is. And uh, to stay in a situation like that where you're being misled or it's misleading other churches or misleading other people, I don't think you're doing the right thing. Uh, I think God said, you come out. In that, from that situation. Now, if you're in a good gospel church that um, preaches the gospel, believes in Christ, etc., etc., um, you know, that's a different situation. But if you're in a church where there's no true gospel being preached, I would say that you leave it as soon as possible. Don't wait, uh, because... Um, you're actually making people twice the child of hell, as Jesus said in, in the book of Matthew chapter 23 concerning the Pharisees. He said, you, you don't enter the kingdom, and you stop people entering the kingdom, he said. And uh, I think sometimes a church that is not teaching the gospel, is obscuring the gospel, I would advise anybody to find a different church to go to.
0: What about to the individual who says, but Pastor, I can't remember a specific time that I accepted Christ as my Savior, or I repented of my sins. But I've always had a relationship with Jesus Christ, even to the time back when I was a child. I remember hearing about Jesus, and I always believed in God.
1: Well, the devils believe and uh, tremble. The problem with people, they believe don't tremble. So the devils fear God more than we fear God. The problem of saying that you believe in God is not sufficient. Um, It's very, very clear that salvation is a particular event in your life. And it's that event where the Holy Spirit brings you under conviction of your sins, and you become to understand for the first time that you are a sinner before God, you're under divine wrath. And in that time of desperation, you're looking for hope. And that's when the Holy Spirit points you to Jesus Christ as the one who dies on the cross in your place. It is a specific time in your life when you awaken to your sin and your need of repentance, and that God has made provision for you through Jesus Christ. I, I would suggest to anybody who claims to be a Christian, you must have gone through that, that that stage in your life where you came to that conviction that you needed forgiveness and pardon, that you were a sinner, you needed to repent, and that you saw Christ and Christ alone as the only answer and solution to the problem. That's just what I would say.
0: Are you saying that I have to know the exact time and date?
1: Well, quite frankly, I can't even tell the time and date for myself. Uh, I remember writing it down on my um, partition of my bedroom when I got saved. And since then, they painted it over. Since then, not only painted over to destroy the wall, so I can't tell you. So, no, I think it's a you remember the time it happened, you don't necessarily have to remember the exact date. I just not very good at historical dates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I, can, I can't I can tell you the exact day, but I know exactly when that happened. It's like when I got married, I can tell you when I got married, but sometimes I even forget the date I got married. So, I've got to keep <laughs> keep in tab with my wife so she doesn't put me in the doghouse. I always <laughs> got to remember two dates her birthday and uh. anniversary I tried and by the way I gotta go and look back at the book to find out what it is because I'm not focused on that (laughs) but I think you would know I think every person who is really safe will know the moment uh, they made that decision and I'll tell you what you would know there was a real change in your life. I'm not saying you're perfect, but you will know your whole whole disposition, whole outlook on life changed the moment you met Christ and you became a believer. It was a transformative moment in your life that continues with you today. I'm not saying you didn't make mistakes, etc., etc., but I think you're very much aware that it was a ch- a, a point of change, a tra- point of transformation when you completely reversed. Uh, I think it's very a real, real encounter.
0: In the last four minutes of the program tonight, Pastor. Are there real biblical reasons for the Millennial Kingdom, and why is it so important that we believe in it? Why is it an important issue?
1: Well, um, there are several things uh, that are important, um, why we have to embrace the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, one of those things, of course, is the fact that God has to fulfill His promises. I don't think you, you can't you can't sweep that under the rug and, and say it doesn't matter. If the Millennial Kingdom is not going to take place, it means that God has made hundreds of promises in the Old Testament that will not come to fruition and that puts God in a very precarious position of trying to defend his integrity so we've got to believe that it's important for the fact that um, he has to fulfill those promises and he has to reward his faithful remember that part of the promise that he made uh, to his disciples that you will rule with me you who are faithful be me will rule me in the millennial kingdom, and you'll judge it. And he's told that those who go through, they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. So he has to reward, and he has to fulfill his promises, not only in the Old Testament, but also in regard to ruling the reign. The other thing is that uh, it's important because creation uh, has to be redeemed. Uh, and what I mean by that... Uh, I mentioned that he cursed the the serpent, he cursed Satan himself, he cursed the woman, he cursed the man, and he cursed nature. And uh, he is promised uh, in Scripture. uh, We mentioned Romans chapter 9, chapter 8, that one day there will be a lifting of this curse and the restoration to almost an Edenic stage. Again, that has to take place because that is something he said. The other thing is... um, the, the promises in, in, the, in the scripture, and then there's some other things. He made certain promises uh, and covenants that he has to keep. Take the Abrahamic covenant, for example, which was an eternal covenant, which was unconditional, which was unilateral, and which um, was unconditional. In the Abrahamic covenant, there are three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. There is is a, is a matter about his descendants, and that his seed would become a great nation. We know that has happened. But it's also a promise about the land, and the promise is made that the parameters of Israel will be from the river Euphrates down to the Nile River. Now, either he didn't know what he was saying, or he meant that, or he made a mistake. But if you check uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 15, 18 to 21, you see that those are the parameters of the nation of Israel. Those were never uh, fulfill. So one of the promises he made to Abraham is that he would have this extent of land for the Euphrates River down to the River Nile. That has never taken place. And and the land uh, that is, uh, land in Egypt, land in Syria, land in Lebanon, and land in Iraq that belong to this territory must be fulfilled and become part of that promise he's made to Abraham. So he, to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, that has to happen. That is why, during the Millennial Kingdom, he will not only reign at Jerusalem; he reigns over the world, and he fulfills that promise. And then um, we know that the other part of the Abrahamic problem was the uh, promise was the blessing that through him all the world would be blessed. We know that the world was blessed through the Messiah, but that is only partly fulfilled in Christ's coming. The world will be blessed when the Messiah himself now sits on the throne. And the whole world experiences the righteous rule of the Messiah. So my point is this. He has to fulfill the covenants that he made. And one of those covenants has to do with the Abrahamic covenant. which relates to the land and the blessing. And then uh, the Davidic covenant that was made between Christ, uh, God, and and David. And it had three aspects. David's house, they would have a dynasty, uh, a family that would rule it would be a throne which is the authority and the right to rule and then there would be a kingdom that would last eternal again uh unless he wants to break the davidic covenant someone has to sit on the throne of david and rule uh and uh, and that rule goes into eternal uh, into the eternal look at one passage there with me Luke chapter 1 verse 30 to 33
0: Luke chapter 1
1: verse 30 to 33
0: All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33 says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne, throne of, of Father his David.
1: That's the promise, and that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So uh, part of the reason why we must be living in the millennial kingdom, he got to keep his covenant. That's the covenant he made with David, not being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom when Christ sits
0: on that throne. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Keep your radio dial tuned to CRL, and tune in next week for That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program.